You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Trust that you had a good uh, Thanksgiving with your friends and, and families and and uh, now we set our hearts toward uh, Christmas and so for the next few weeks we're going to look at Matthew's account of the Christmas story and uh, what I hope to be an encouragement to, to you uh, in your walk with Christ. The Christmas story is more than just sentimental, it is supernatural, uh, it is a part of redemptive history, God's plan to redeem the world through His Son, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And Matthew's gospel is one that focuses on the kingship of uh, Jesus. On virtually every page of his gospel, there's something about his deity or something about his kingship uh, that Matthew is highlighting. And uh, we'll see that as we look at Matthew chapters 1 and 2 uh, here at the very beginning of his gospel. And uh, so we'll look at the king's ancestry this morning, beginning in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shatil, and Shatil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word today, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and one that points us to your son, Jesus Christ. And that's whom we want to see and know today. And so, Lord, 
Open our eyes to see Christ in your word. And I pray that you would use me as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease. And your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when it comes to the the Christmas stories that we uh, love, uh, many of them seem to begin with very familiar opening lines, right? We think about Twas the Night Before Christmas. Or we uh, think about, uh, I owe everything to George Bailey. Or we think about in Luke's gospel, in those days a decree was issued by Caesar Augustus. And we're all familiar with those lines, but we're probably not as familiar with Matthew's opening line, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's not quite as endearing, is it? Not quite as uh, memorable to us. It's not exactly a part of the story that we tend to focus on. But I want you to see that from Matthew's audience, that perspective, that this was really kind of a bombshell opening in a good way, a huge statement, a declaration of truth. One of the things that we have to understand as we look at this text today is that the Jews were very passionate about their pedigrees about their lineage, what we may read and we think about in the old King James Version as a bunch of begats, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, as that was actually of great importance to them. Our families, uh, their family's lineage had a lot to do with their vocation, had a lot to do with their location. Uh, It was uh, important. In fact, it's still true by the time of Jesus' birth. I mean, in the story that we, the part we are familiar with in Luke chapter 2, in those days a a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went down to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because, here was the reason, he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So they're still identifying people according to their lineage. At the time of the birth of Jesus, it was important to them. This isn't the only time in the Bible that there is a genealogy. Of course, there are several in the Old Testament, and the two most significant in the New Testament are Matthew and Luke, and they're the most significant because they're the genealogies of Jesus. And the genealogy in Luke chapter 3 is different from Matthew's. Luke starts with Jesus and goes backward, and Matthew begins with Jesus. Matthew is showing us the royal lineage of Jesus, while Luke is likely showing us something of the paternal lineage of Jesus. And so the legal or the royal line in this case was always traced through the father. And so even though Joseph uh, was not Jesus' father by blood, Jesus had no blood father, as we're going to see, he was Joseph's child legally. Because if you were adopted into the family, you were a legal child with all the rights and all the privileges of of a son. And so he was Joseph's child legally, Mary's child by blood. And Matthew wants to communicate here in this passage that Jesus is in the lineage of David and Abraham. and, And because he's in the lineage of David in particular, he has the right to rule. He has a royal lineage. He is 
a king. And so, if you, as you read this, Matthew does not include every single generation. He leaves some generations out. For example, uh, one example is found in verse 8. Jehoram was actually not the father of Uzziah, but was rather his great-grandfather. Now, now, please don't think that Matthew's made some kind of error in his uh, research here. The term father of in the Greek language can also mean ancestor of. And this is a common practice of ancient genealogies in some ways to, to uh, pick and choose which ancestors to mention. Come to think of it, that's not a bad idea in some of our own family heritage, right? You know, got a cousin Eddie you want to leave out. Understand, Matthew's not writing to give you a complete family tree. It's not why, it's not his purpose. Uh, he's writing so that you will believe that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that he comes from the royal lineage of King David. And so that is his focus in this genealogy. And we can understand some wonderful truths about this newborn king who is named Jesus. I want you to notice three of them this morning. One of the first things that we notice is that Jesus is the promised king. He's the promised king. Uh, the opening verse reads much like a title. The, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, know that Matthew is making a huge statement in that verse alone, right from the beginning. Literally, verse 1, the, the, the book of, of the genealogy is, is the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. The book of the beginning, the, the word choice is not accidental. Matthew is about to tell the story of a new genesis, a, a new beginning. His gospel is about God establishing his kingdom, and it will begin with the coming of a king. You, you need to know that this is the central theme of all of the Old Testament prophecies, uh, the coming of a great king who's going to rule in God's promised kingdom. In the first kingdom, in, in Genesis, God created mankind and he said, let them have dominion over creation. Genesis 1:26. we were royal children appointed to reign over the kingdom of creation. But as you know, by Genesis 3, we had sinned against God. And the rest of the Old Testament tells the story of a kingdom lost, basically, and and the king who is coming to restore uh, that uh, kingdom. According to Genesis 3.15, right from the beginning, this great king will have the power to bruise Satan's head. Though he will, uh, though, though he will take back man's dominion uh, that was lost through sin, this, this king's going to come establish a kingdom on the earth that's going to extend through eternity. The prophet Nathan spoke to King David in the Old Testament about a future king. 2 Samuel 7, 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, he told David. David's kingdom was shattered after the reign of his son Solomon. And that promise was waiting to be fulfilled. The prophets taught that this great king would be both human and divine. Isaiah 7, 14, he would be born of a virgin. Now, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, he would be one like a son of man. 
Uh, Isaiah again, chapter 9, as Jim read earlier, will be called, uh, the, the king would be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Even that he would be, uh, Isaiah seven fourteen God with us. Zephaniah the prophet prophesied that he would be the king of Israel. The Lord who would be in our midst, Zephaniah 3.15. Zechariah the prophet says that when he reigns, every family on the earth will be able to go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. His rule will extend to the ends of the earth. All of this history, all of this prophecy in the Old Testament, all of this talk of this coming king, and now we stand at the beginning here of the the New Testament, the opening pages of Matthew's gospel, and Matthew says, I'm here to tell you about the genesis of Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah, the one promised. Jesus is the anointed king whom God has promised to send. The anticipation of this, the excitement of this, could not be any higher. God is bringing about a reversal of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. A new Genesis, if you will. A new beginning. When a new beginning is happening, Matthew says, and the result essentially will be a new creation when it's all over with. Matthew is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of centuries-old promises that were made to God's people, made to Abraham and David. Genesis chapter 12, God promised to Abraham that his offspring would bless the nations. How could that be? Abraham struggled with that. But you know, Paul would write in Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, in the plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ is the offspring of Abraham who brings blessings to the nations. Christ is the son of Abraham, Matthew is saying. Likewise, when Matthew identifies Christ as the son of David there in verse 1, he's proclaiming that he is the fulfillment of the promise made to David, that his, th- that his throne will be established forever. Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 5 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up from David's line a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And now Matthew is telling us this king has come. This king is here. Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David is here. Now, all of this may not seem as exciting to us as it, does, as it did perhaps to them, and I'm doubtful that, that you're probably going to sit down this Christmas with your children and read the book of the genealogy of Jesus, uh, unless you're trying to get them to go to sleep, of course. But, but really, it, it's pretty incredible the links that Matthew goes to here to, to explain this to us. Uh, the emphasis in verse 17 Of the 14 generations. Did you see that? Mentioned three times. Uh, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. That's referring to verse 2 through uh, first part of verse 6. 14 generations. And then from David to the deportation to Babylon, there's another 14 generations. That's verse 6 through 11. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations, that's verses 12 through 16. Now again, we know that there were more than 42 generations between Abraham 
uh, and Jesus. But Matthew is, is abbreviating these to make a point to us. Why the, signif- why the number of 14? Why the deliberate pattern for it? I mean, Matthew doesn't quite tell us, but he gives us some hints. And, and as we study and we think about these things, there, there's possibilities. The Hebrews loved numbers, and 14 was significant in their accounting system because 14 was literally David's name. Uh, in the original Hebrew, there's only consonants. And so if we think about David's name, D-V-D, D is the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which would be the number four in their counting system. V is the sixth letter, the number six, and then D again, four. You have DVD equals 14. Is that a coincidence? Or is Matthew saying something? He's wanting us to read these verses and hear this music in the background saying, David, David, David. He's wanting us to recognize Jesus is the the son of David, the the legal heir through this throne, that that God's long-awaited king, the the promised one, has come. It's an incredible declaration. This genealogy reminds us that our God is a promise-keeping God. From the very beginning of all of history, God knew exactly where he's going. In fact, he's directing all of history to this moment, to the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ. I love how Sinclair Ferguson applies this to our lives. He says, what a lesson for us. Matthew's painting on the large canvas of history, a picture of God's sovereignty and faithfulness and all of these names and all of these generations of God's sovereignty and faithfulness. But God, he writes, is no less trustworthy when he paints his purposes on the smaller canvas of our lives. You realize this, don't you? Hey, he goes on, uh, Ferguson continues, we sometimes get lost, but God is never lost. We sometimes are confused by circumstances, but God is never confused. We may have doubts about his purposes and what's happening in our lives, but God knows exactly what he's doing. Don't you rejoice in that, Christian? God may seem slow to us, but he's always moving his purposes at exactly the right speed. Our God is never late. He is always on time. His timing is perfect. How true are those words? How faithful is our God? And we see it right here in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God keeping his promise to us. Matthew says the king has arrived The promised king has come. Uh, Just to put your mind at ease, we're not going to look at every single name in the genealogy this morning. I know you're uh, perhaps relieved to hear that today, but there are some other significant things we should note. Notice a second characteristic Matthew highlights, that is that the coming king is a gracious king. He's the gracious king. And he does so in what would have been very unusual at the time. Unusual at the time, and that is the fact that Matthew mentions five women in his genealogy, uh, four of of whom stand out in particular. Uh, The first lady, and maybe we should use that term loosely, uh, was named uh, Tamar, verse 3, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by by Tamar. If you uh, remember uh, the Old Testament story back in Genesis chapter 38, Tamar was the lady who uh, dressed up like a prostitute and 
and waited by the side of the road to seduce her father-in-law and uh, Judah, and they had a set of twins uh, together, Perez and Zerah. And so you pause and you say, wait, why would he mention Tamar? Harlotry, uh, incest even? Why would she be in the, la- the line of Jesus? And it goes kind of downhill from there. Verse 5 mentions a lady uh, by the name of Rahab. Uh, Verse 5, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite woman, another Gentile, uh, a pagan, likely a harlot uh, herself, but she was, you remember the story in Joshua chapter 2, she was spared from the fall of Jericho because she hid the spies, the Israelite spies. She spared their lives. And so God not only spared her and her family's life, but he he brought her into the Messianic lineage of Jesus. There's a third lady mentioned, uh, Ruth. Again, very unusual. Verse 5, Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Ruth was not a prostitute or guilty of incest, but she was another outcast, a Gentile, and uh, most significantly, a Moabite. <laughs> Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, the whole Moabite nation is cursed by God to the 10th generation. And yet, by God's grace, there's a Moabite in the lineage of Jesus. And then finally, there is Bathsheba, whom is not mentioned. Matthew only calls her the wife of Uriah. Verse uh, 6 there, Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. It's interesting, she's called the wife of Uriah. Perhaps not just to highlight uh, her own sin in that, but David's sin, who committed adultery with her and had her husband Uriah killed, essentially. Uh, that child died, but later David took her as his wife, and she bore Solomon and became a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? Why does Matthew include two harlots, a, a pagan and, and an adulteress, along, along with many other sinful men, by the way, in the lineage of Jesus? What is his message here? I think, I think Matthew is pointing perhaps to a couple of things. First of all, that, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not just for Jews, but for all people. It's, it's for the nations, even Gentile women who were outside of the Old Testament covenant. The gospel's for them. Matthew will highlight this again later in his Christmas story, if we call it that, in chapter 2 with those strange visitors, the wise men from the east who would visit uh, Jesus after he was born. Matthew will even include this throughout his gospel, but he will conclude his gospel with an admonition from Christ to go and make disciples of the, the nations. The gospel is, is for the nations. The gospel truth is good news of great joy for all people. Aren't you thankful for that, church? And it's particularly for sinners. And I think Matthew may also be highlighting the fact here that this King Jesus is so powerful and such a gracious king that he can overcome the effects of sin and shame in our lives. What a glorious truth. He can redeem our past. Coming through the line of people, the Israelites, whose history was one defeat after another, and it really is, coming from sinful men and women, was this king of all kings. 
And who would have ever dreamed or thought that this king would be a friend of sinners? He's come not to call the righteous, he said, but sinners to repentance. He's come for the lowly of lowliest, for the down and out, for the deep in sin. And he has come to offer them grace. He's come to save the very kind of people who appear in this family tree. I I don't know if you've thought about this before as a perspective, but apart from Christ, we are like a child who's been separated from his natural parent. At birth, we're separated by sin from our Father who created us. Every single one of us has experienced perhaps that empty feeling that something is missing. Maybe we wondered about our roots or we felt disconnected or we ask ourselves, who do I belong to or where do I belong or what am I here for? And you understand that the answer to that question is wrapped up in this gracious king here in Matthew 1. This is a king who calls us to come back home into the family, who loves us even though we are sinners. This king who would die for us, paying the price for our sins, rising again on the third day, and who offers us grace, offers grace to those who repent and turn to him in faith. What an incredible gift this king is to us, the gracious king, Jesus There's one more characteristic I want you to notice of uh, this king, and that is that he is a supernatural king. He's a supernatural king. The reason that he can extend this kind of grace and forgiveness of sins is because he is divine. He's supernatural. Jesus is virgin-born. He is supernaturally conceived. And the supernatural conception of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, is is meant to point us to his divine origins. Uh, Note the change in verse 16 in form from the rest of the passage. We've been reading over and over again the phrase, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of, all this father of. But we're told very explicitly here in verse 16 something different. The pattern breaks, doesn't it? And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Isn't it interesting how carefully Matthew states that? There's no ambiguity with it. Joseph is not Jesus' physical father. That's what he's saying. He's not Jesus' physical father. He's a father in a legal sense. But Jesus is born of Mary. And and not just that. The verb tense that Matthew uses there, not apparent in the English translation, but the verb tense for was born is actually something that's called a divine passive. And and what that means is, is Matthew is telling us this was, Jesus was born according to the activity of God. It was divine. Now, hopefully we've already gotten that sense as we thought a little bit deeper about this. Matthew's cramming in 2,000 years of biblical history into 16 or 17 verses or so, 42 generations. We're getting the idea that something significant is happening here. This king promised by God thousands of years ago has come. He's clearly not like other kings because the scope of his kingdom is going to be for all people. He's going to be a gracious king, welcoming even sinners to them. Clearly, this is no ordinary king. This is a supernatural king. 
And Matthew will expand on this in verses 18 to 26, where three times he will mention that Mary was a virgin, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The point that he's making is very clear. Jesus is not just the son of Abraham. He's not just the son of David. This is the son of God. The promised one, the gracious one, who's come to save his people, he can do so because he is divine. He is God. This is such good news, isn't it? I mean, this is why that we would pause to celebrate this time of year and think about Christmas. It's especially good news for anyone who needs a, a new beginning. Uh, there's a great sense in which, in which Advent, this season that we are entering into, is all about the new beginning that God has made possible by sending his son for us. And here we have Matthew's announcement, the book of the genealogy or the book of the Genesis, signaling to us that this new beginning has been inaugurated by the coming of this new king. A king who has come, who reverses the effects of the fall of Adam. A king who will accomplish what Adam and what we have failed to do. A king who will remove sin and shame of our past and make us new creations by his grace. Through his cross and resurrection. Perhaps a new beginning is what you need this, the most today. As we approach the end of another year, maybe there are some things in the past 12 months or so in which you wish you could do over or that you could start over. Maybe you feel that way even about some big things in your life. If, if that's you, Matthew wants you to know that you can find that new beginning in Jesus Christ. And in fact, it's the testimony of many people here that we have found that new beginning in Christ. Amen, church? Would you give testimony? But you have to turn to him. You have to confess your sin and your need for him. If you've already done that uh, today, you already know him, then I pray that you would marvel at his goodness and his greatness today. As you look at this genealogy, which again, first glance, just looks like a whole bunch of names, I hope that you will see Beyond this and behind this, what Matthew is saying, that our God is fulfilling his promises from beginning to end. Our God, the God that we've gathered to worship today, truly is sovereign and faithful. And he offers grace and steadfast love to his children. This king that we are worshiping today and celebrating today is worthy of your worship and praise. He is worthy of your bowing. He is worthy of your surrender. He is worthy of your life because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Worship him today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word here in Matthew. Uh, perhaps an unusual beginning for us as modern readers, but Lord, what powerful statements he has made revealing to us the person and character of Jesus Christ. And we thank you today for the promised king who is Jesus, and we thank you that he is the gracious king. And that even as we come to him, 
today, having blown it again this week, that He offers grace. That He can do so because He paid the price on the cross for our sins. So may we look to Him today with humility and confessing our need for Him and then worshiping Him, surrendering ourselves to Him as the wonderful Savior that He is. Help us to celebrate that even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.